of BCE, near the time of the death of Herod the Great. He spent his early childhood and adult years, early adult years, in Nazareth, a Galilean village. He was baptized by John the Baptist. He called disciples. He taught in the towns, villages, and countryside of Galilee, but apparently not the cities. He preached the kingdom of God. About the year 30, he went to Jerusalem for Passover, and he created a disturbance in the temple area. He had a final meal with his disciples. He was arrested and interrogated by Jewish authorities, specifically the high priest. And he was executed on the orders of the Roman prefect, Pontius Pilate. Sanders then goes on to provide what he refers to as a short list of equally secure facts about the aftermath of Jesus' life. Again, these are historical facts that the majority of today's historians are agreed actually happened after Jesus' death. These are, the disciples first fled. They saw Jesus, but in what sense isn't certain, after his death. As a consequence, they believed he would return to found the kingdom. And they formed a community to await his return and sought to win others to faith in him as God's Messiah. Now, I wonder if you, any of you find that list surprising. Well, I know I did when I first read it as an agnostic. What I was surprised to find was that the accepted historical view of the, Jesus' life and its after, aftermath was so close to what I understood to be the biblical view. Now, when we look at evidence for the resurrection later on this evening, I'll come back to this list along with some of those circumstantial threads of evidence regarding early Christianity I've touched on so far. However, before this, what I'd like to do is briefly look at what the sources of evidence tell us about Jesus himself. The sources of evidence indicate that Jesus' disciples thought he was the Son of God and the Messiah. I suppose the key question is, were they correct? So, who was Jesus? And I think... For an atheist and an agnostic, it's hard to believe that the historical figure of Jesus is also the Son of God. Is Christianity then based in some massive misunderstanding about who Jesus was? Well, what I'd like to do is take a few minutes to look at what the sources of evidence tell us about who Jesus was and is. I should say, again, we cover the topic in a lot more detail in the booklet you'll see later on this evening. So... I suppose the first question was, was, was Jesus convinced that he was the Son of God? And it's sometimes suggested that although Jesus saw himself as a teacher and Jewish holy man, he didn't regard himself as the Son of God. Indeed, some have claimed that as a good Jew, Jesus would have regarded such a view of himself as blasphemous. Well, to address this question, what I've focused our search this evening on Mark's Gospel to see what, what we can see about Jesus' view of himself um, so I've taken Mark's Gospel, and the reason I've taken Mark's Gospel, as you'll remember, Mark's Gospel was the, the one that was written first, some 30 to 40 years after Jesus' death. I've restricted this, the search in this way to reduce the possibility of Christian theology getting in the way of developing an accurate picture of Jesus' view of himself. So when we look at Mark's Gospel, I think we can see clear evidence of Jesus thinking and acting in a manner consistent with him believing that he was the Son of God. For example, well, in Mark's gospel, he forgives sins. 
In the medical narratives, Jesus sometimes links the physical or mental affliction of the person about to be healed with the person's sinfulness. For example, in Mark chapter 2, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven, as a precursor for the healing of a paralytic. Now, as any good Jew knew, only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew the Jewish scriptures and teachings. In acting this way, he was directly linking himself with God. In Mark, it says that the Jewish religious authorities also realized this and accused them of blasphemy as a result. Also in Mark's gospel, Jesus teaches on his own authority. Now, this might appear as a bit of a technicality, but in Judaism, you require two people to conduct religious teaching, one to witness what the other was teaching and vice versa. Jesus, however, makes a point of teaching alone. He precedes many of his teachings with the words, I tell you the truth. So what you might say? Well, any other Jewish teacher in the first century would say something like, I tell you the truth. And here's another teacher standing next to me that will verify I'm telling the truth. Well, so why is that important? Well, a Jewish audience would know that only God can teach on his own authority. Again, Jesus is linking himself with God by teaching in this particular way. Also in Mark's Gospel, Jesus refers to God as Father or Abba, Aramaic for Daddy. Again, so what you might say, isn't God regularly referred to as Father in the Christian church? Doesn't mean that Christians believe that God is their actual Father. Well, I guess the problem here is that we're used to the Christian view of having an intimate father-child relationship with God, a relationship modelled in Jesus' relationship with God. As a result, it's been common in the last 2,000 years to refer to God as Father. However, to first century Jews, calling God Father would be blasphemous. Jews weren't even allowed to mention God's name, the tetragram YHWH, often pronounced Jehovah, if you are allowed to pronounce it, I suppose. So to refer to God as Dad or Daddy would have been seen by Jews as downright eccentric, as well as blasphemous, unless, of course, you actually were God's son. And also in Mark's Gospels, the miracles had symbolic meaning to those they were performed in front of. They were performed in such a way as to link Jesus to such Jewish figures as Moses, Elijah, Joshua, and so on. Another miracle, the calming of the storm, also suggested to those who witnessed it that Jesus was God. In this event, Jesus and his disciples are on an open boat on the Sea of Galilee when they are caught in a violent storm. As the wind and waves rage and the boat begins to fill with water, Jesus is sleeping at the back of the boat in a cushion. The disciples wake him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Jesus then gets up and shouts at the waves, Quiet, be still. And the storm immediately abates. Jesus then gives his disciples a hard time for the lack of faith in him. Now at this time, Jews believed that only God had control of the elements. Further, Jews believed that Satan's home was under the waters of seas and lakes. For Jesus to take control of the wind and waves in this way was a clear sign to his followers that he was the Son of God and that he had control over Satan. No wonder the disciples were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. So, I think it's fair to say these points don't provide conclusive evidence or proof that Jesus is the Son of God. However, it certainly indicates that it was very likely that he saw himself in this particular way. 
Well, that's all very well, thinking you're the son of God. There are many people alive today in mental institutions and being cared for in the community who might think something similar. So was Jesus severely deluded to think of himself in this particular way? Well, in the booklet, we look at what psychologists think of Jesus' mental condition when they review the sources of evidence we have. Conclusion that they come to and that we come to is that, that there's really no hints of evidence suggesting Jesus was exhibiting any of the behaviour patterns associated with delusional behaviour. Personally, I think the best thing for anybody to do is have a look at the Gospels yourself, read the Gospels yourself and see if you can see any actions that Jesus is doing, anything that Jesus is saying that seems to be consistent with, with what we might classify as delusional behaviour. Okay, so it looks like uh, Jesus saw himself as the Son of God and the Messiah, and there are no clues to suggest he was massively deluded. Well, however, what if he unintentionally misled his disciples so that they believed he was the Son of God? Or what if he sincerely believed that he was the Son of God and was just wrong? Alternatively, what if he deliberately misled the disciples? What if he had some other agenda for saying he was the Son of God? What if all the miracles and healings were actually sleight of hand, deception and magic tricks? I think these are all legitimate questions that people should ask and we'll just step through each of these individually over the next couple of minutes. Well, let's start off with Jesus unintentionally misleading his followers. And earlier, a few, few minutes ago there, we dis discussed whether Jesus was severely deluded, mad if you prefer, to think that he was the son of God. And the guess is we're all quite comfortable with concluding that it's unlikely he had serious mental health problems. But what if he un unintentionally misled his followers? What if he actually sincerely believed he was the Son of God but was just wrong? Now this is a common argument put forward by non-Christians. To quote Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion, page 92 of the hardback version if you want to have a look, Richard Dawkins says about Jesus, a fourth possibility, almost too obvious to need mentioning, is that Jesus was honestly mistaken that he was the son of God. Plenty of people are mistaken, honestly mistaken. Well, indeed, plenty of people, as I say, have been honestly mistaken about all kinds of things. Doesn't make them mad. I've been honestly mistaken about all kinds of things in my life. However, if I stood up here right now, looked at you in a kind of focused way, and said with all sincerity, people, I'm the son of God. No, no, really. I know what with this accent and this Martin Spencer suit, probably unlikely, but uh, I'm definitely the son of God under all this. What would you think? I think the politest thing you'd probably say is, Derek probably needs to have a wee sit down and uh, have a drink of water to clear his head. So what am I saying? Well, what am I saying is, you can't have it both ways. If you think you're God, then you're either wrong in the head or you are God. Further, if you're, you think you're God and are prepared to do something about it by going on a mission that collects followers, challenges the established religious order of the day and ends up getting you killed and your followers, then you really are wrong in the head or God. Okay, maybe he didn't unintentionally mislead his followers, but what if he deliberately did it? Could he have deliberately misled his followers so they believed he was the son of God. What if those miracles were just elaborate, an elaborate hoax, hypnotism, magic tricks, sleight of hand, so on? Now we do know of some charismatic and messianic leaders in the past who have deliberately misled their followers. 
Could Jesus have done something similar? Now what we do is we spend a bit of time looking at this in a lot of detail in the booklet. And you, and you can identify, well, what we try and do is kind of identify, well, what possible motives would somebody have to deliberately mislead their followers in that way? And then what we try and do is have a look at the sources of evidence and see, well, can we see anything like that happening in, uh, in the Gospels and letters of Paul and so on and so forth? So the kind of motives that certainly we come up with in, in the booklet are, well, Some people have deliberately misled their followers because the ends justify the means. And there have been many people who are convinced that their political or religious views would make the lives of their followers better. If achieving these ends meant that a bit of deception, double dealing and ruthlessness was required on those followers, so be it. Better that some loyal followers suffer so that the majority gain the benefits. What about power over others? Now, some, for some people, control over other people is an end in itself. They just seem to hunger for the devotion of others. They seem to get some form of kick out of manipulating and controlling people. People like this will do anything to have a following. Simple deception is often the least of their crimes. And what about fame? For some people, fame's an end in itself. It's really important for them to come to the attention of others. For some people, it doesn't matter if they're admired or reviled just so long as they're famous. For people like this, a bit of deception would be very small price to pay for fame. And what about attention-seeking? I had friends who knew a, a woman who pretended to have cancer so she could get all kinds of attention from her friends, family and work colleagues. She managed to keep this deception up for over a year. Clearly for that woman and many other people, a bit of deception to get some attention is seen as necessary. And what about good old-fashioned material gain? Some people have been motivated to do terrible things for simple material gain just to make their lives more comfortable. If others have to suffer to achieve this, well, regrettable, but just too bad. So, those are the kind of motives that you might have for deliberately misleading your followers. The question then is, do you see any of these these traits in the sources of evidence we have? And I think what we see in the booklet is, if you look at the Gospels, you look at Paul's letters, and you look at so you don't see any evidence or even hints of evidence of Jesus behaving in this way. But as I've said before, the best way of checking this out is have a look at the sources yourself. Have a look at the Gospels, have a look at the letters, see what you think yourself. Okay, so to summarise for the first half of this evening... In the detailed review of the Jesus the Evidence book, we come to the following conclusions. It looks like Jesus thought he was the Son of God. It looks like he wasn't mad or delusional. And it's very unlikely that he either unknowingly or knowingly misled the disciples to believe he was the Son of God. So, what are we left with? Well, maybe, just maybe, he was who he said he was. Now what I'd like to do now is have a short break. After the break, what I'd like to move on to the one key event on which the the evident existence of Christianity rests, that is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Is there compelling evidence to support the resurrection being an actual historical event? Thank you. Anybody's, has anybody escaped from the first half? I can't remember. There's a few blank spaces there from, from earlier on. So have they run away, do you think? Yeah. <laughs>
or were they making the tea? <laughs> well, thanks for sticking with it, and thanks for thanks for for staying for the second half. What we're going to talk about in the second half is, unsurprisingly, resurrection, the evidence, and. Um, to start um, this part of the evening, what I'd like to do is go back to that list of events of the life of Jesus from the historian E.P. Sanders' book, The Historical Figure of Jesus. And you, and you might remember that when, in the first half we went through a list of what Sanders, E.P. Sanders refers to as a list of secure facts about the life and death of Jesus and the aftermath of Jesus' life. And as I said, these are historical facts that the majority of today's historians are agreed actually happened before and after Jesus' death. So let me briefly go through some of the last bullet points on Sanders' list. About the year 30, some people say it was AD 30, some people say AD 33. Sanders goes with AD 30. Personally, I'd go with AD 33 for Jesus' um, Jesus' final week. Um, I can explain why I would say that a bit later on, but there's two dates, the AD 30 or AD 33 that's possible. But what Sanders talks about is, is year 30. Jesus went to Jerusalem for Passover. He created a disturbance in the temple area. He had a final meal with his disciples. He was arrested and interrogated by Jewish authorities, specifically the high priest, and he was executed in the orders of the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate. And as I mentioned in the first half, Sanders then goes on to provide what he refers to as a list of equally secure facts about the aftermath of Jesus' life. These are his disciples first fled. They saw Jesus, but in what sense is not certain after his death. As a consequence, they believed he would return to found the kingdom. And they formed a community to await his return and sought to win others to faith in him as God's Messiah. So I guess the purpose of the remainder of the evening is to focus on that third last bullet point. Today's historians, Christian historians, non-Christian historians are agreed that something happened to convince the disciples that they'd seen Jesus after his death. So what did the disciples see and experience after Jesus' death? Now in the rational 21st century, it's kind of difficult to get our heads around the idea of a man dying and coming back to life again three days later. Our medical knowledge, our understanding of biology and physics, our own personal experience all tell us that people just don't come back to life after they die. So, I guess, you'd be forgiven to think, surely to goodness, there's some other explanation for what happened. Well, what we're going to do now is look at some of the more common alternative explanations and see how they sit with the evidence we have for what happened. And I suppose one explanation could be that it's pretty easy to appear to your disciples after your death if you didn't die in the first place. So, was Jesus really executed? Could he have been taken off the cross before he died and revived sometime later? At first glance, this doesn't look too implausible. We've all heard of people who have been pronounced dead, then to everyone's surprise, revive some hours or days later in a mortuary or hospital. This kind of thing can occasionally happen today. Happened to this fella here in Alabama about three years ago. Uh, the, the man was uh, pronounced dead by, the doc by a doctor. He was in the mortuary. He was uh, um, 
he was on a he was on a, a slab with the, that cover over the top of him, and one of the mortuary attendants heard a little scratching on the inside surface, and blow me if the, the man wasn't hadn't uh, wasn't dead at all, but he was actually alive. And here is here is the gentleman recovering in hospital. So that can happen in 2014. What about 2,000 years ago, when uh, medical knowledge was more primitive? Could the Romans who executed Jesus have made a mistake? Or was the whole thing faked? Was the crucifixion somehow stage-managed as some form of diversion to, avoid Je uh, to allow Jesus to escape? That's what the whole basis of the Da Vinci Code and the book it was based on, the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, is all about. So, in response... Consider the following. Well, historians and archaeologists can tell us quite a lot about Roman torture and execution techniques. I'm not going to go into the gory details this evening. If you're interested, plenty of books and TV programmes on the very subject. But what our knowledge of Roman crucifixion, uh, torture and execution tell us is that it was very unlikely that anyone survived a Roman crucifixion. Now, there are a few examples from other historical sources that it did happen, but it was a very rare occurrence. And if you think about it, even if Jesus could have been taken down before he died and the, the nails taken out of his wrists and feet, he'd have been unable to use his hands because it had gone right the way through there, crushing all his, all his nerves and, re and removing the ability to move, his, uh, move the tendons in his hands. And he would be unable to walk as well. It's very unlikely he'd have made a full recovery. Also, it wasn't executed by amateurs. Roman soldiers are the ones that did the work. Now, they might not have had 21st century medical knowledge, but they knew exactly how to kill someone. That's what they were trained to do. Professional career killers. Also, he was executed in the orders of the Roman governor of Palestine, Pontius Pilate. One argument goes that perhaps the soldiers had been bribed by persons unknown not to kill Jesus. Instead, they were to stage-manage a fake execution. Well, firstly, that had been kind of difficult because it was a public crucifixion, as all crucifixions were. That was the whole point, to act as a warning to others not to disturb the Roman order. Secondly, if they had been found out, the soldiers would have uh, disobeyed a direct command from the Roman ruler of Judea. A slow and painful death would be the inevitable results. And also, the sources of evidence we discussed earlier all agreed that Jesus was tortured and flogged before he was crucified. So, just suppose he was able to survive his crucifixion. Just suppose there was some plot to get him off the cross. What kind of condition would he have been in? Hardly an impressive sight for the disciples a few days later. Hardly an inspiration for the disciples to then go and spread of the, me the message of a risen Christ triumphing over death throughout the Eastern Roman Empire. So, in summary, it's highly unlikely that Jesus survived his crucifixion. It's also highly unlikely the whole thing was stage-managed either. However, as you may be aware, this fake crucifixion theory has had some popular currency in the last few years. If you've read the book or seen the film of Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, you'll know that one, of, one theory is that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Instead, he escaped to southern France along with his wife, Mary Magdalene. In southern France, their children intermarry with the Merovingians, thus creating a holy bloodline the Catholic Church have been trying to suppress ever since. 
And as I said, the, this theory is based on an early book, earlier book by Bajant Lee and uh, Lincoln called The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. Could spend some time this evening looking at the pros and cons of this theory, however, be going over ground well covered in the numerous books and articles written on this subject currently available. Instead, I think what I can say is this theory is just that, a theory. Whilst there are historically factual elements to the theory, other facts are ignored. There's also a large amount of speculation required to arrive at the conclusions the books and the film make. Now, if this is an area of interest, my suggestion would be to read the reviews, books and articles on the subject. There's plenty on the internet to get you going. I think what you'll find, though, is that um, it really has no serious takers amongst the overwhelming majority of today's historians. There are a few people, the likes of the person that wrote The Holy Blood and The Holy Grail, but very, the vast majority of today's historians that specialise in this period of history really don't give this any credence whatsoever. So, it would look most likely that Jesus was executed. But what happened to his body? Now this is important to consider. Clearly it would be difficult to explain Jesus being alive after his death if the corpse was still in its tomb. Gospel account of what happened is that uh, Jesus uh, was executed... He was prepared for burial and placed in a rock cave tomb. On the third day after his death, some of his female followers went to the tomb and they found the tomb open and Jesus' body missing. As I mentioned earlier, although the documentary evidence in the Gospel seems to vary in some of the details of the empty tomb, the events present in all four Gospels. Clearly, early Christians believed his body had disappeared from earth so that it could come back alive. he could come back alive to his followers. However, are there any other explanations why his body might have been missing from the tomb? Well, perhaps one way of approaching this is to look for a motive. Who could have removed the body from the tomb? And what would their motive be for doing so? Well, the Romans could have moved him. And the Romans' main concern was to maintain order in Jerusalem. Their motivation for executing Jesus, as we've seen from E.P. Sanders' list, was in direct response to that disturbance that Jesus had created in the temple area. This disturbance created the unrest the Romans were always trying to avoid in this very volatile part of their empire. Now Jesus had some very devoted followers. Perhaps the Romans were concerned that by leaving Jesus' body in the tomb, it would become a shrine to Jesus and a focal point for further unrest. And it's fair to say this line of thought had, does have some modern parallels. For example, at the end of the Second World War, the Russians discovered Hitler's body in this burned-out bunker in Berlin. However, they destroyed the body so that it couldn't be buried. Their concern was that Hitler's grave would become a focal point for Nazi sympathisers in the future. So, a possibility that the Romans might have taken the body. But, what undermines this theory is that very shortly after Jesus' death, Jesus' followers are going around saying that he's risen from the dead. They're making a nuisance of themselves and causing the very disorder the Romans were trying to avoid. Indeed, the Romans then spent about the next 300 years trying to suppress the disorder that developed throughout the Roman Empire <coughs> as a result of this one event. So, to nip all this in the bud, to stop it all getting out of hand, if the Romans had taken Jesus' body, well, why wouldn't they have just produced it? However, a common fate for the corpses of crucifixion victims was that they were thrown in the municipal rubbish dump 
and were eat, where they were eaten by wild dogs and, uh, and animals outside Jerusalem in the valley of uh, Gehenna, uh, or Gehenna in the valley of Hinnon. This is what the Romans had done with Jesus' body, then they may not have had it to produce. However, it had been a relatively simple thing to publicly state that this is what had happened to the body. However, we've got no direct evidence or even hints of evidence that that happened. I think we have to conclude that it's unlikely that the Romans were responsible for the empty tomb. Well, what about the Jewish authorities? Well, their motive for taking the body and the counter-arguments are pretty much the same as the Romans. A third group that could have taken it, taken Jesus' body, was the disciples. Would they have had a motive for taking Jesus' body from the tomb? Again, this would be unlikely, I think, because I personally can't see any motive that they might have for doing something like that. Also, the disciples believed that Jesus was raised from the dead and were prepared to die for that belief. And in most cases, they were uh, killed for that particular belief. A couple of examples on this, this slide there. If they had taken the body, well, why then would they have made up a mate raised from the dead story and be prepared to die in defence of that story? It just doesn't really make any sense. Now, to me, grave robbers is more of a possibility. Grave robbing did occur at that particular time of the um, robbers were looking for the valuable goods sometimes buried with a body. In fewer cases, they were looking for the body or body parts themselves for use in magic rituals. Well, I suppose the first thing to have a look at as far as this is concerned, well, was there anything to steal? The Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark and Luke, mentioned that Jesus' body was wrapped in a linen cloth. No grave goods are mentioned. Grave robbers usually steal the goods buried in a body, with a body, not the decomposing body itself. John's Gospel mentions about 34 kilograms of myrrh and aloes that were wrapped in the linen cloth around Jesus' body. Now that would have been worth stealing. However, John's Gospel also tells us that Jesus' grave clothes were in the tomb with the burial cloth neatly folded when the disciples entered the tomb and found Jesus' body missing. That doesn't fit with the grave robbing theory. If you're robbing a, a, a grave of, spi for, of spices wrapped into the linen binding around a dead body, You'd either, it would make sense to either take the wrapped body from the tomb to be unwrapped to remove the spices elsewhere, or to unwrap the body in the tomb and take the spices. In the first scenario, scenario there'd have been no body or grave clothes left in the tomb. In the second scenario, there'd have been an unwrapped body with the grave clothes in the tomb. So, just doesn't look likely. However, what about that other possibility? And we do know that from a few Roman and Greek sources that dead human bodies or body parts were used in magic rituals around the Roman Empire. However, it's also fair to say that the practice wasn't rife and we've no evidence that this occurred within the Jewish part of the Roman Empire. Indeed, Jews would find this kind of behaviour abhorrent. Now, the burial occurred in Jerusalem, the most Jewish of Jewish towns and cities. This makes the concept of a stolen body for the purposes of magic even less likely than if the burial had occurred in, say, somewhere like Rome or Athens or Alexandria, somewhere like that. So it would seem that nobody has a particularly strong motive for either taking the body or keeping it a secret if they had done so. One final point is probably worth making on this subject. 
the disciples of Jesus were the founders of what we know as Christianity. After the resurrection, they didn't go to some obscure place miles away from where it all happened to preach about the resurrection. No, they went back to Jerusalem, the very place of Jesus' execution and tomb. Fundamental to their preaching was the empty tomb of Jesus. If this preaching had been false, it would have been clearly evident to the people of Jerusalem. Some people would be bound to know where Jesus' tomb was and or what happened to his body. Now, the population of Jerusalem at this time was around about 70,000. Trying to use a, I'm trying to think of a kind of West Yorkshire exa example, but uh, I, I would typically use Kilmarnock, uh, but, uh, but that probably means absolutely nothing to you whatsoever. It's a, a relatively small town. The number swelled to around about 200,000 during Passover, but the, the, the fundamental, the, the baseline population, about 70,000. Clearly, it would have been very difficult to win converts in a place like that where people would know the, the, the location of the tomb and would, word would have got round whether or not Jesus' body had been found or not. So in conclusion, I suppose we can't say that there's any concrete evidence to demonstrate that Jesus' body left earth as the disciples claimed. However, what is clearer is that his body disappeared and that those with a vested interest in claiming that it was still on earth, the Romans, the temple authorities, couldn't prove that it actually was. So, at the start of this part of the evening, I mentioned the E.P. Sanders' secure fact that uh, Jesus', uh, Jesus followers saw him, but in what sense is not certain after his death. As we saw, Sanders says this because historians are of the majority view that Jesus' disciples saw him after his death. I guess what uh, historians are less certain about is the in what sense part of the statement. So what do the Gospels say? Well, there's more than one appearance. There are 11 separate and distinct appearance events described in the Gospels and Paul's letters. Those appearances happen to individuals, groups of people, and in one case, 500 people. These happen over a period of 40 days after Jesus' death, with the exception of his appearance to Paul, which happened much later. And the Gospels are, are clear that Jesus was with them physically. He could eat, drink, cook, touch, be touched, and be conversed with. He also, though, could appear and disappear at will. And often in the appearance events, the disciples don't seem to immediately recognise the person they're with as Jesus. Now, as I said earlier, in the rational 21st century, it's difficult to get our heads around of a man dying and coming back to life again three days later. Our medical knowledge, our understanding of biology and physics, our own personal experience all tell us that people just don't come back to life after they die. So... Are there any other possible explanations for what the disciples saw other than the risen Christ? Well, did they see a ghost? And I suppose for us in the rational 21st century, this is probably a bit as hard to grasp as seeing the resurrected Jesus. However, the description of a physical Jesus, a Jesus that could eat, drink and be touched, doesn't sound like a spectral appearance. Okay, well, maybe they were subject to some form of hysteria. And it's fair to say that the swallowers of Jesus would have been very distraught after his death. That can make people a bit irrational and unstable. 
Is it possible that seeing Jesus alive again was all in their minds some form of mass hallucination, fevered imagination, or wish fulfillment? Well, in response to this, our knowledge of psychology tells us that hallucinations are individual occurrences. They aren't something that happened to groups of people at the same time. Now, I know I've just put up a slide that says mass hallucination, and I'm sure you've all heard the term mass hallucination. But the reality is, is it doesn't actually exist in practice. I, when I was putting the booklet together, I did, I was kind of interested a bit in, in to find out a bit more about hallucination and what causes hallucinations for people and, and you know, the medical causes of it and so on. So I did an internet search on hallucination, typed it in, and up came a number of medical articles on on the causes of hallucinations, why people would hallucinate, the mental conditions that people might be in, and so on and so forth. I then typed in mass hallucination into Google, and a whole lot of stuff came up about Atlantis and conspiracy theories and a whole lot, a whole lot of other kind of far out there nonsense. Nothing on, a me on, on uh, nothing medical at all, nothing to, to support the concept of mass hallucination as a, a a verifiable thing that could happen. <coughs> Where you can go with this is you can put the word mass and hallucination next to each other in a sentence and get the words mass hallucination. It doesn't actually mean that it, ha that it actually happens. Hallucinations are individual occurrences. They can't happen to a large number of people at the same time. However, in addition to that, there are also multiple appearances of Jesus over a period of five weeks to different people and to the same people more than once to explain. Now you could just about, just about imagine a situation where a small group of people grieving in a room together might work themselves up into such an emotional frenzy that they were able to convince each other that they saw the person they were grieving over. I guess we've all seen footage of people having ecstatic and religious experiences like this induced perhaps by a charismatic preacher, their emotional condition, hallucinogenic drugs, or their ability to go into a self-induced trance. Or could any of the event, appearance events fit with something like this? Well, if I'm honest, the circumstances of one or two could. Although if I'm also honest, there's nothing in the sources of evidence hinting that anything like this actually happened. <coughs> Excuse me. For the rest, the actual appearance descriptions in the Gospels just don't fit with some form of ecstatic event. For example, two disciples are walking to a village called Emmaus in broad daylight. They're chatting when suddenly Jesus appears with them. And all the disciples are out catching fish in the Sea of Galilee. As they come ashore, Jesus is waiting for them and has cooked breakfast for them. And in another, Jesus appears to 500 people at the same time. As I mentioned earlier, there's a few, there, there are 11 separate appearance events in the documentary evidence we have. When these are studied and dissected, there is little or no evidence to suggest that hysteria played a part in the appearance events described, experienced by the disciples. Okay, another possibility is they actually just made it all up. But as I mentioned before, nearly all the disciples met violent deaths proclaiming Jesus as the risen Son of God. And they just wouldn't have done that if they'd made the whole thing up. So, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, today's historians, Christian historians, non-Christian historians, specialising in first century Near Eastern history, are of the majority view that the disciples saw Jesus after his death. Well, in what sense then did they see Jesus? 
Well, it's unlikely they saw a ghost. It's unlikely they suffered some form of hysterical event. And it's unlikely they made it all up. As I've said a few times this evening, in the rational 21st century, it's difficult to get our heads around the idea of a man dying and coming back to life again three days later. It's pretty implausible. It just doesn't happen. But historians tell us that the disciples saw Jesus after his death. We've looked for various explanations for this. By deduction, it would seem that the least unlikely explanation is that they actually saw Jesus alive after his death. By deduction, the other uh, explanations look even more implausible than this. Okay, all very interesting. But is there any other evidence to support the resurrection? What we've seen so far kind of points to the, the, the evidence is kind of pointing to the resurrection being an actual historical event. But is there any other event, other evidence we should consider? And I guess the answer to that is a clear yes. So let's consider the following. Let's look at this in a bit more detail, the disciples dying for their beliefs. Now, you might say, well, so what? Countless people have died for their beliefs since the disciples. For thousands of years, people have been enthusiastically dying for what they sincerely believe in. From Emily Pankhurst to Bobby Sands to the, um, the um, uh, London tube bombings to the, um, the, uh, the Spanish Inquisition, people have been enthusiastically dying for their, their sincerely held beliefs since the disciples in their thousands. So, what makes the disciples different from these people? Well, one key difference, I guess, is that the disciples sincerely believed that Jesus had died and that they had personally met him after his death. They sincerely believed that he had personally conversed with them, eaten with them, and touched them, and were prepared to die for that belief. What they weren't prepared to die for is a, an ideology or a set of beliefs passed on to them from some political or religious leader. Later Christian martyrs could possibly fit into that category. However, with the disciples it's different. They were prepared to die and did die because they had personally seen Jesus after his death. This points clearly to the disciples having actually seen Jesus after his death. Another piece of circumstantial evidence is the conversion of skeptics. In the very early days of Christianity, two of the early leaders of the way, as the early Christians called themselves, were people who had been unconvinced that Jesus was the Son of God. We heard earlier on this evening about Paul, as Saul he was a persecutor of Christians. What changed them to a follower of Jesus was meeting Jesus alive on the road to Damascus sometime <coughs> after his death. The other former skeptic, we, an early leader we know of, is James, the brother of Jesus. Now, Jesus wasn't an only child. He had a number of brothers and sisters. His whole family, including his mother, initially tried to stop him in his mission. In Mark's gospel, his whole family, presumably James included, come to get him. Mark says, when his whole family heard about his teaching, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. That's Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Now, James isn't mentioned as a follower of Jesus in the gospels, yet in the early church, James is a leading figure. Well, why is that? 
Well, we're told in Paul's letters that he too, James, had seen Jesus after his death. James changed from being a skeptic to a believer after seeing the risen Christ. Another piece of circumstantial evidence is worth thinking about here is and by kind of asking a kind of rhetorical question, well, why is it that there are, there are Jewish people in the world today? Jews can trace their origins back to the tribal Middle East of 3,000 to 4,000 years ago. There were other people around at the ta- that time, so why is it that there are no people alive today who would call themselves Babylonians, Ammonites, Assyrians, Hittites, and so on? Well, the answer to that is the social and religious structures that make Jewish people Jews. Jewish people have lived side by side with non-Jewish people for the last 2,000 years, but have remained distinctly different because of their own customs, laws, eating habits, religious practices, and so on. And to Jewish people, these are the things that make them who they are and are terribly important to them. Now, some people have regarded the first Christians as another Jewish sect, and in a sense they were. However, they were different from the other Jewish sects that existed at that time. These other sects didn't disagree with the fundamentals of Judaism. The first Christians were Jewish people. With clear evidence, though, that early after Jesus' death, these Jewish Christians rejected many of the foundations of Judaism, an enormous social leap and one that brought with it great personal risk to their own lives. We also have evidence that these changes weren't made lightly or easily by the early Jewish Christians. So what were these changes? Well, they stopped offering animal sacrifice. They eventually rejected belief in keeping Moses' laws, not the Ten Commandments, but the other eating and social and sacrificial laws that Jews believed was to be, to be right with God. They changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. They believed in a trinity, one God in three forms. This was blasphemy to the Jews. <coughs> Excuse me. They believed the Messiah had come. Jews were and are still waiting. And they initiated the new ritual of the Lord's Supper a ritual that celebrates Jesus' victory over death. Why did those early Jewish Christians make those changes? Well, because their leaders had seen Jesus alive after his death, remembered his teachings, and were therefore compelled to make these changes. Another piece of circumstantial evidence is just the emergence of the church. And earlier this evening, we talked about how quickly after Jesus' death, Christianity caught hold and spread through the Roman world. Well, why did that happen? Equally importantly, it was, well, why did Christianity survive? Particularly when um, other religious fads we're aware of at that time didn't survive. Why didn't Christianity fizzle out after a few decades? Well, the answer is the resurrection. A core of people witnessed Jesus alive after his death. And the sources of evidence tell us that this core of people were transformed from illiterate fishermen, Jewish zealots, tax collectors and other ordinary people into tireless advocates for the risen Jesus. As we heard earlier on this evening, they, the disciples, formed a community to wait his return, Jesus' return, and sought to win others to faith in him as God's Messiah. They did all this because of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there would have been no lasting Christianity. Without the resurrection, well, we wouldn't be here tonight having this presentation. So, to sum up, let's just have a kind of brief review of what we've covered this evening. 
Well, we started by saying that the Gospels and most of the letters of Paul are likely to provide an accurate account of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. We stated that the view of today's historians has been that these documents are, on the whole, accurately preserved for us and haven't been subject to accidental or deliberate modification. We reviewed other historical event information that was contemporary too, but out with the Gospels. This provided information that didn't contradict what was in the Gospels and the letters of Paul. I've gone obviously gone the wrong way here, right? No, that's it, right. We presented evidence demonstrating it was very, very likely that Jesus was executed and died. We presented evidence also that it was very likely he was buried. Oh, hang on, sorry, I'm going my way for I'm going ahead of myself here. Yeah, right, aye. Uh, yeah, so, so, yeah, we reviewed this. Yeah. We suggested that it was very unlikely that Jesus saw himself in this way due to some psychological condition. And we also suggested that it, when the sources of evidence are reviewed, there's no evidence to say, suggest that Jesus deliberately misled his followers so that he believed he was the Son of God. We then presented some evidence to say that it was very likely that Jesus was executed and died, and that he was buried, and shortly afterwards his tomb was found to be empty. We looked at possible reasons for his tomb being empty and suggested that the least unlikely explanation was that his body was no longer on earth. We looked at the historical basis for Jesus' appearance to his disciples and we found that this is regarded as a secure fact by most of today's historians. And we reviewed that what, what it was that the disciples saw and we suggested that the least unlikely explanation was that the disciples saw, met, talked with and ate with Jesus in bodily form after his death. Lastly, we reviewed some of the circumstantial evidence for the resurrection and we suggested that without the resurrection, it's likely that the disciples wouldn't have died for their beliefs. Skeptics like Paul and James would not have been converted. A clear separation of Jewish Christi Christians and Judaism would not have occurred. The early church wouldn't have emerged and spread so quickly. And Christianity would not have lasted to this day. I must change that slide. History is not a science. It's a, it's a discipline. Sorry. History is really an exact discipline. We can rarely say with absolute certainty that something happened in the past in a particular time and it happened in a particular way. Even today, with mass communication, controversy can rage relating to the events that happened last week or a few years ago. We only had to see the, the papers this week with the recently released um, um, documents on John F. Kennedy's assassination that we've still got this issue with um, uh, regarding the truth of that and also with Princess Diana's death. And I guess it's the same with Jesus' death and resurrection. I can't say with absolute certainty that the, uh, the evidence I presented this evening is 100% correct. I can't say with absolute certainty from this evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. But what I think I can say is that Jesus being the Son of God is the most likely explanation for the pretty extensive evidence we have. What I can say is that looked at rationally, the alternative explanations for the evidence are simply far less likely.
Now, I'm sure some of you are agreeing with this, and I'm also sure some of you will be thinking, well, isn't this a bit one-sided? Christian presents evidence for Christianity in church settings. Surely there's another point of view. Well, frankly, if I'd been sitting where you are when I was an agnostic, that's probably exactly what I'd be thinking. However, my spiritual journey didn't end by reading The Case for Christ and a few Christian histories on the life of Jesus. I trawled bookshops for books on atheism. I felt sure I'd find some kind of atheistic uh, alternative to some of this stuff that would kind of blow it all out the water. I scoured atheist websites. I read detailed hostile reviews of The Case for Christ. I listened to and read books and articles by atheists, and I still do that. I read the New Testament for myself. I read biographies and critiques of Jesus by non-Christians. And I'd also encourage anyone with doubts about the material presented this evening to do exactly the same. And what was the result of that research? Well, I think I can summarise it by saying that I was an agnostic then, and I'm a Christian now. Okay. Is any of this important to you today? And what we haven't discussed this evening is Jesus' message and what it means. What we haven't discussed is why Jesus' message is important to you today and me today. You may or may not be glad to know we're not going to start now. However, consider this. If Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is real, then his message is real too. In the last 2,000 years, countless lives have been positively transformed by Jesus' message. Don't kid yourselves. If you truly accept Jesus' message, and I'm stressing the words truly accept, and Jesus' message, then it's always a positive transformation. So in conclusion, do you not owe it to yourselves to weigh up the evidence and decide what you think? And if you do this and decide that Jesus is real, Do not owe it to yourselves to find out what his message is and start to experience that positive transformation. Thank you very much. Now I said earlier that... uh, (laughs) Now I said earlier that... um, uh, Two things still to do. Um, if anybody got any questions, I'm happy to, to take some questions here this evening and answer any questions you've got, anything that's come up from this evening or anything else for that matter. The other thing is, before you all go, I've got copies of the booklet for you all. Um, everybody, gets, everybody leaves with a copy of the booklet. And what I would also say is, if you're sitting there here think, thinking, you know, I wish such and such a person had been here this evening, or wouldn't it have been great to, for such and such a person to hear some of this or see some of that, Take two booklets. Take three booklets. There was one guy in Kilmarnock, again, um, that took 23 booklets. But he had homes for them all, and I was perfectly happy to give them. They're not doing much use sitting in those boxes there. So if you can take more than one, and you've got somebody in mind to give it to, fantastic, take more than one. But we'll give them out at the end of the evening. Anyway, before, before we go on with that, any questions from, from, from you this evening? Anything that's come up on, the, on what you've seen this evening? I'll come down. The, the, the passage in 1 Corinthians 15, when it talks about the scriptures, mm-hmm. I thought that meant the gospels, but if the gospels weren't written until afterwards, what part are they referring Correct. to? Correct, it's the Old Testament.
When Paul's letters were written, there were no Gospels. When Paul refers to the Scriptures in, in, in his letters, he's talking about the Old Testament. So he's seeing in, he's talking about the, the if you like, the prophecies that exist within the prophets, you know, uh, indicating the, the Messiah and how the Messiah is going to come and so on. So he's reading from the Old Testament what, he's, what, his, uh, what he's, he's seeing is happening. He sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and what's happening within the, the books of the Old Testament. Any other questions? Well, if you want to ask me one yourself, and then I'll switch the microphone off and we can have a chat at the end of it. But let's, uh, probably the best thing for me to do now is get, uh, get these, these, these lists out. So I'm going to take this off.